Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying Because the Beatles, why wouldn't you really? Feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. You can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Yay. So this is pretty cool because we are actually back on a nice schedule. Yes. After a little break. Hiatus. It happens. Life happens. Yeah. You know, like we could quote John Lennon here, but let's just... I did that we'll last episode. The, yeah. We did. We did. It's true. <laughs> so what have you been doing since... When we last talked, what, a couple weeks ago? Yeah. Oh, it's been a busy week. My fiance had a milestone birthday, so I threw him a huge party. And nice. we had, it was like the birthday that lasts. Actually, it's still going. His final present is on Monday or Wednesday when we go to Hamilton, which is going to be awesome. Oh, nice. Yeah. Just been doing that and working and all that stuff. How about you? Same. Preparing for some cool stuff uh, at Yield Job, which I can't really talk about yet, but hopefully this week. Um, really? and, uh, yeah. So just working hard, just obsessed with Game of Thrones. I know you're not a watcher. No, you know what? <laughs> I've been forced into being a watcher and now I'm kind of into it. Oh my God, please go back <laughs> to the beginning and watch all of it. Like I, so I've watched it twice all the way through and it was better the second time. Really? And I'm going to watch it again. Like, I can't wait. I'm like waiting until the whole thing wraps up and then I'm going to watch the whole thing again. It's just so good. Okay, maybe I will because like I stopped watching when the big guy popped the little guy's eyeballs out in that fight and it was just so gross. (laughs) I couldn't take it. And then, but then I heard like, Arya went blind and then not blind and all this stuff happened and I don't even know. Yeah. Like Jon Snow died and didn't die? What? He's not dead anymore. No. So, although, you know what? We're, we're recording this on Sunday. So there is an episode tonight. So who knows? Maybe Jon Snow will die tonight. I don't know. Yikes. Yeah. So Game of Thrones tonight. We'll see what happens. In other TV news, I guess I just watched the Adam Sandler hosted episode of SNL from last night. And um, I find myself a little emotional right now because he did a really beautiful song for Chris Farley, really? which, you know, Aww. yeah. And I was thinking, it's fu- so funny because it sort of loops around to our episode today, but about the Red Hooded Sweatshirt song that he did on SNL in the 90s. Yeah. yeah and Paul and Linda made a little cameo. Oh, I love that. I know. Yeah, I was hoping he would do more of his 90s stuff, but he, he yeah, it was just great. It was very nostalgic. He should not back away from his 90s stuff. The Senseless Beating of a High School Spanish Teacher classic. I... I'm not in love with Indy Sandler. I gotta say, like I'm like pure Billy Madison up in here. Really? <laughs> yeah, okay. I know you wouldn't. I I know you wouldn't expect that from me because I'm extremely classy. But I love Billy. Yeah, Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore, Waterboy. Like I am down to clown. Although <laughs> I will say, Click is one of my mo- the movies that makes me cry every time. I have not seen Click. Uh, Click is in, is amazing. It sounds so stupid, but it's so effing good. Everybody needs to watch Click. Literally every time. I cry. I watched it with my roommate and she was like, I don't cry at movies, blah, blah, blah. And like, she was weeping. It's so fucking good. And of course, Henry Winkler's in it. So anyways. All right. This has been Because Adam Sandler. 
<laughs> I know we're now a we're now a Sandler podcast. This is because Sandler. Well, so. the '90s are back, yeah. so whatever. I know, I, and I just I can't even start on that because I'm just so fucking sick of this trend. I I just hate seeing teenagers appropriating '90s stuff, and I'm sure that's how people feel about '60s, like how whatever, but. It's just so stupid. It wasn't good the first time, y'all. Like, the fashion sucked. But the music was really good. I actually went to my first Soul Cycle class last week, which it still hurts. But the music theme was Oasis versus Smashing Pumpkins, like, for a Soul Cycle class. So <laughs> bring that stuff on. Bring back the 90s if we're going to get things like that. Oh, my God. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we're going to talk a minute about Paul's tour, but maybe he should do a revival of, like, Off the Ground. Oh, my God. <laughs> You would can die. Just do, You'd be oh my dead. God, you wait. would be dead. Can, I would be dead. Can he just do a fucking tour of all his 90s stuff? Like, oh, shit. If he did, like, Off the Ground and then Run Double Run and Flaming, Flaming Pie. Flaming Pie. Oh, please, Flaming Pie. <gasps> yes, oh please, anyway, Paul. Okay. Let's freshen this shit up. Yeah, that would freshen That would freshen this shit up totally. I just, yeah, I can't even, my, my brain hurts because I just want that so bad. <laughs> oh, Anyways. Okay, take a deep breath. <laughs> okay, moving, sort of moving past. Okay, we're good. We're okay. Okay. Let's take a deep breath. All yes. right, it's all good. <laughs> Into the latest news, a few fun things have been happening in the past week. The first is that the film Nowhere Boy has been optioned for a potential musical stage development, which I'm super excited about. You were a Nowhere Boy fan? I didn't love the movie, mostly because I didn't think that the little dude who played Paul McCartney, like he bothered me. He didn't feel good to me. <laughs> he just didn't feel right. Wasn't the kid that was in like fucking every British movie in like the early aughts. Yeah, yeah, and then he was in Doctor Who, so that's where I know him from. It's like oh, the little oh, creepy okay. kid from Doctor Who. I didn't really love the movie either. I just thought the whole like angle they took on Julia was really creepy. But yeah, I I don't know. I'm open to a musical adaptation. And it said, I think on Broadway World that they were gonna maybe integrate more of the influential songs instead of like making it. Like, of course, it's early John, so they can't really do much Beatles anyway, but, you know, probably like the Coasters and yeah. um, Eddie Cochran and that kind of stuff. So I'm sure that'll be that'll be cool. The early, early stages of the Beatles is my favorite historical time. So if you're going to do something like this, I'd like to see that, you know, rather than a musical about like the Beatles breakup, which would be ridiculous and tragic and just probably hilarious, too. I'm interested to see who they cast. Yeah, I'm really hoping that they get people with pretty authentic accents. It says that the producers right. envision it more <laughs> of a play with music rather than musical theater, which I think would probably be better for the subject matter and also will help them be able to incorporate real songs rather than, you know, John Lennon coming up and singing about what he wishes and dreams in life, which would probably be bad. Oh, God. Yeah. That makes me, like, throw up my mouth. I know. Anyway. I know. Let's hope they didn't do that. They're going to be, like, music is going to be more of a backdrop and, and a setting for them rather than traditional musical theater. Fingers crossed. Fingers <laughs> crossed. So that's something to look out for. Yeah. Um, and also look out... Well, we just alluded to it, but Paul is coming to the U.S. finally on his Freshen Up tour. Yay, thank God. Paul. Yay. So he's going to be in North Carolina and South Carolina later this month. Exciting. Have you gotten your tickets? Have I gotten my tickets? 
Paul McCartney has not what? done a, yeah. he's not announced a single date within like 500 miles of me. No New England, no New York, no like uh, Mid-Atlantic, Maryland, D.C., nothing. Like the closest to me is like Lexington, Kentucky, which I can't go to. That's oh, too Jesus. far. Don't go to that. Yeah, so, what the hell? Like, yeah. But there are some big holes in his tour schedule. So I'm really hoping he will fill some of those holes with some Northeastern tour dates. You've oh, got one, though, Dodger Stadium, July 13th. Yeah. So have you gotten your tickets yet? No, I like to wait until the last minute because there's always something good on StubHub, which I think is what we did, right? We talk yeah. about this all the time, but I start looking a week or two in advance, and I, there's usually a really good ticket for not super bad. I think what we were on the floor, like, yeah, 10 rows back. I think we paid, like... We were fifth row. It's like a couple hundred. That wasn't that bad. No, it really wasn't. So, yeah, I'll wait till closer time. But, hell, yeah, I, I'm excited about that. I mean, Paul's always a good a good time. Maybe he'll do this 90s comeback tour. Well, he does listen to this podcast religiously. So, you know, I just want the credit, Paul. Just please give us a little shout out, you know, because we were the geniuses that came up with the 90s concept. So. Yeah. And if you can't do it all, if you just do Flaming Pie, we'll know you thought of us. I mean, Flaming Pie front to back, that would be amazing. Just <laughs> I was just thinking the song, but the whole album, absolutely. Go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The album. <laughs> The album, hundred percent. Yeah, souvenir. Yeah, a little like used to be bad. Like, oh. let's just get that shit. Bring out Steve Miller. Let's just do it. Yes, that is Steve it. Miller on used to be bad, right? Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there's a, that's the thing. Even before we get to go see it, hopefully I get to go see it. There are going to be reports coming in. So the first one is actually Tuesday, May seventh, probably the day this drops. Let us know how it was if you went to see Paul, because we kind of live on other people's experiences of seeing Paul McCartney live when we can't be there. For real. Please and thank you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, in other news, do you know how to do a headstand? I I don't. I don't either. I don't either. I can get only so far in yoga when it comes to being upside down. I get kind of freaked out. Paul McCartney is going to be able to give us some advice. In his latest You Gave Me the Answer column on paulmccartney.com, he goes through the, the, uh, the instructions of how he does a headstand, which he still does. So two awesome things about this. First, he still does yoga. He still works out and he can still do a headstand. And two, he gives some really technical advice on how to do one. <laughs> uh, that's cool, I guess. I mean, I'm just disappointed there's no freaking pictures that go along with it. I know. I think I've seen him do one. But I like the mental picture, too, though, that whoever's asking him the questions, can you do a headstand? He's like, oh, yeah, I'll show you. Come on, I've already done it today at the gym. Paul does the headstand. <laughs> I think that we might get our wish because it looks like Paul has said in this article that he has often thought about videoing himself doing a headstand and singing a song while upside down. Let's hope that appears on his Insta story really soon. That's all we want in this life. But seriously, it's amazing. Like, not only the fact that I would love to see him do that, but, you know, still being out there and proving that whatever age you are, you can still do yoga and you can still be athletic and you can still go upside down, which I've never been able to do. So (laughs) I'm super impressed. Yeah, that's that is really impressive. We talk about this all the time, but Paul is totally changing the game for aging and and. Thank you, Paul, for doing that. Yeah, and if anybody felt like, you know, he's looking a little grayer now, he let his hair go natural. If you're thinking about, oh, he's, I guess he's really aging now. Well, his physical abilities are still there. So 
he's still doing what he's got to do to stay youthful. Yeah. And also silver maca is the best maca. So please keep the silver, Paul. You look awesome. Oh my God. When he like, when he's like a little shorter, a little spikier and he kind of pastes it a little like with some product, he looks so good. Yeah. He looks great. Oh, I love the silver. It's so great. <laughs> oh man. Oh, well from Paul to John. So I was excited to hear this. If you haven't seen the uh, John and Yoko Bubba's only sky documentary yet, it's now streaming on Netflix. So get at it y'all. Oh my God. I'm going to watch that this week. I'm so excited. Hell yeah. I, yeah, I love it. So if you're not familiar, it kind of came out in conjunction with all the imagined stuff and it's, you know, it features a lot of footage of the imagined sessions and some outtakes of the album and blah, blah, blah. But it's great. It's got a lot of amazing footage. People like kind of talk controversially about it because it gives Yoko a lot of credit for John's work. But I think it's pretty even handed. I think Yoko does deserve some of the credit because they were collaborating. Yes, a lot. she does. Exactly. So I think it is great. I think it's worth a watch for every Beatles fan. And if you watch it, tweet at us, let us know how you liked it. Um, and let's talk about it because it's, it's definitely worth chattering about it's just yeah it's a really interesting take on this album that we all know and love yeah and apropos to our topic today of course if yoko gets any credit in the public eye people are going to come out there and say that she was given too much <sighs> yeah we'll get into this yeah 2019 we're still there <laughs> we're still there. i know there's still yoko hate and it's just i just can't even it's just it's too much anyways regardless of how you feel about yoko just watch this documentary it's good i certainly will fantastic <laughs> Uh, let's see, a couple of announcements. A reminder that BC the Beatles will be at the Beatles on the Ridge Festival in September in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. So we're very, very excited. Jude Sutherland Kessler, who you may have heard on our John Lennon birthday episode. She is a John Lennon scholar and author. She has a blog on the Fest for Beatles fans. She used her last edition to spotlight some second generation fans, including us. So if you ever go to the Fest blog, check it out. We're very excited to have been part of this blog post. And we're super excited to be at the Ridge in September. So if you're in the area, think about coming. Yeah, we're really excited and we'll definitely give you some previews of what to expect, certainly of our live podcast recording and the Ridge itself a little bit closer to time. But yeah, it's going to be really, really fun. Yay. And one more announcement next time on next time on Because the Beatles, <laughs> um, <laughs> we will be discussing our book club book, uh, which is Brian Epstein's autobiography. We'll talk about that and what that means. Um, a cellar full of noise. Uh, it's great. And it's a must read for every Beatles fan and, uh, get your copy. I think it, we say this every time. I think it's on Kindle for pretty cheap. It is. It's like five bucks on Kindle. Otherwise it's out of print. So that's, that's really the only way you can get it unless you're, you get very (sighs) lucky at a flea market or a used bookstore. Right. Which is such a problem, but, um, it's really from the time period of the Beatles breaking in the U S and it was, uh, heavily ghostwritten by Derek Taylor, but, um, it has a lot of great insights from Brian and it's got a lot of good quotes and a lot of good isms. So we'll be talking about that next time, which is going to be really fun. I'm super excited. And we'll be putting out a post for questions. If you guys are reading along and you have any questions for us to discuss as we go along with our book club discussion, please let us know. We would love it if you guys would be part of the conversation too. Definitely. This is the part where we would usually do history. But, you know, as I was looking at history, it seems like May, the Beatles really took vacations like every fucking year. So (laughs) they deserved it. They deserved it. 
I wish we could take a vacation for the whole month of May every year. But. Right? I wish I was a beetle. No, I don't actually. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of history, we're gonna we're gonna talk about something that happened in last episode's history, really, um, which was Linda McCartney passed away 21 years ago in April. She passed away in April 1998 after a many years long battle with breast cancer. And so we decided that we wanted to devote an episode to Linda. We love Linda and we think she deserves more recognition, not for not only for all of the things that she has done in her life and her career with and outside of Paul McCartney, but because she's a really badass feminist in her own way and by the example of the life that she led. So we want to discuss that and we just want to bring her out into the light a little bit this episode. I mean, Linda has always been a really interesting topic, an interesting person, and somebody who added a lot of color. And, you know, I mean, she was really such an inspiration for a lot of Paul's things. And also, you know, just on her own was a prolific artist and creative force. So this is going to be great. I'm excited to talk about Linda. Yeah, me too. Now, I'm, I'm wondering, is Linda one of my favorite people? Because specifically, I'm a second gen fan. Do first-gen fans and third-gen fans not really think about her, but second-gen fans do because she was part of the real-time experience of Paul McCartney when we came hmm. up as fans? That's interesting. So for me, I came on board with the Beatles after she'd already died. But I had friends that were very much enmeshed in her real time sort of like sickness. And they were really emotional telling me about like what happened. I remember one of my friends talking about how back in the day in the late 90s, you know, there were like Yahoo chat rooms and all that kind of stuff like AIM. and. Mm The glory days, really. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember her telling me that she was in, I think, like an AOL chat room the night Linda died. And she sort of had a sense like Linda had died. Like nobody's talking about it. People were sort of like holding a virtual vigil, like sort of just sending good vibes to Linda. But she sort of had this like feeling. And she remembers talking about how devastating that was. And then when the news broke, it was like, you know, obviously swept through the community and that kind of stuff. But I myself, like I came up just a few years after that in the Beatles fandom. But I do remember, I don't know why, but my best friend at the time, we became Beatles fans together. I basically made her because I didn't have any real life Beatles friends. Shout out. Hey, Aaron. She <laughs> doesn't listen to us, but anyway. But we got this idea to start printing out pictures from the internet and like taping them onto our shirts. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, but we, I remember taping a picture of Paul and Linda onto like my shirt and we started this like online club called We Love Linda because we were still seeing a lot of backlash against her. I remember just this like visceral reaction where like, no, she was like a fucking badass. And I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, the Wide Prairie album coming out and like loving what was on that and the light comes from within and all of that. I still remember a little bit of the vitriol spewed at Linda even after she died in those years following. Maybe it all just came to the surface and that's what it was. That's just sick. That's sick. I don't remember it. I was kind of like, that was like the time in my life when I wasn't really following the Beatles so much. I kind of heard and I was like, oh my God, like I was really like brought up short because I wasn't paying, I wasn't following. So I did not know that there was like a lot of negativity about her at that point. That's nuts and gross. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. It's interesting. First generation fans, I mean, I can only speculate. I would hope they had 
would have softened to Linda, you know, in the years, you know, that she and Paul were married. I get that sense, don't you? There was a lot of hate for her when then she got married because Paul was the last single Beatle. And right. also because then once Paul put her in wings, you know, there was a lot of what gives her the right to be there. She's a groupie. Mm-hmm. She's a follower, all of this kind of stuff. I would have hoped that in this time that they would have been softened. But I mean, who knows? People still have this vitriol towards Yoko as well. Yeah, which is very strange. Very strange. I mean, yeah. And and how much do the third generation fans think about Linda? Because really, like Heather Mills was probably, you know, around when they were coming up through the fandom or even Nancy, you know, so Linda was way in the the rearview mirror at that point, which is so weird to think about. I know, it's so right? strange. But she's as much history as like Cynthia Lennon would have been history or Patty Boyd. Oh, that's so strange. So they would hear Maybe I'm Amazed and be like, oh yeah, you know, that song was for Linda. Just like we think of something as a song for Patty Boyd, but maybe that's as far as it goes. Right. It's like Paul's first wife who died of cancer. Which is crazy to me. I know. I it's that's a very interesting kind of thing. I'd love to you know what, if you're a quote unquote third generation fan, if you're like in the, your teens or early twenties or whatever, you know, let us know because we're very curious to know what you think about Linda and like your experience with Linda. Absolutely. Oh my god. Okay. So <laughs> We could go on. Yeah, we we could go on about Linda all day. And actually we will. So I guess we will. <laughs> we'll start that. So just a little background on Linda, if you don't know much about her, um, you know, she's most well known for being Paul McCartney's first wife of 29 years. They had three children together and Paul adopted her daughter, Heather, from a first marriage. And you've probably seen Heather if you've seen any of the Let It Be footage. She's that adorable little blonde with a page boy haircut and the yellow coat that's around Paul all the time. She's so cute. Mm, it's so cute. Yeah. And um, beyond the Beatles era, Linda was a celebrated rock photographer. She was a vegetarian cookbook author and food entrepreneur and one of the three original and long-lasting final members of Wings alongside Paul and Denny Lane. She did a lot in her life. And at least for me, one of my favorite things about Linda is looking at her life as an example of a woman who lived her life to the fullest. And to me, that is an example of a feminist icon. So... I want to just talk about that today, especially because feminism is not something that is associated with Linda McCartney in any way. You know, there are a lot of different definitions of feminism. And to be clear, she was not an activist for equal rights. She didn't do any of those things. What I'm talking about more is her authenticity and her way of life. And in her life, it was quite the opposite. She had a lot of criticisms focused on her from the public's perception of how she lived her life and how she presented herself as a female. You know, in other words, there are lots of criticisms that would never have come upon her if she was a man. The first is that she was accused of being a groupie, that she wasn't actually a good photographer, that she hung around rock stars and slept her way to the top. And she calculated that she was going to marry Paul McCartney and she got her wish. I found this one article from... Very noted and also very controversial second wave feminist Jermaine Greer, who wrote this opinion piece about the women in the Beatles lives right after Paul divorced Heather Mills. It was actually called Pop Bitch. You can still find it online. Um, (laughs) I've never heard of that. I got to find that. (laughs) It's scathing to every single one of them. Pop Bitch. I want that to be my new internet screen name. I think you should change your Instagram handle to Pop Bitch. Ooh. Okay, bye. (laughs) 
Well, anyway, in this horrific article, she said that Linda was a very um, famous groupie, not to pun, actually, a rather bad Paul McCartney song, and that around town, Linda was known as Linda Starfucker. I've never heard that, to I be honest. I have never heard that anywhere else. I have searched and searched. I cannot find anything to corroborate this. Also, let's just note that Jermaine Greer has become a bit of a troll in her later years. Some of the things that she said about the Me Too movement and rape culture are pretty shocking. So um, take that for what it is. But that pretty harsh criticism aside, there was certainly a lot of talk that Linda was top groupie who snagged the big fish. And, you know, was not around because she was a great photographer, but because she was attractive and she slept with a lot of men. Right. Basically, the argument is she used her photography as like a secondary thing in order to just get in these circles. Right. Which is crazy. It is crazy. And we'll discuss more about that. Linda was also accused of being too much of a traditional wife and mother. She, they accused her of, you know, tagging along after her husband in wings, you know, forcing him to put her in the band and perpetuating negative stereotypes of women by being focused on food and family and children and, you know, getting up and singing solos like Cook of the House during the 70s Wings tours. All of those things are true in a way. She was very focused on her family, on her children, on cooking, on food, on making a home, on domestic life. She did not force Paul to put her in the band. Paul compelled her to be in the band. Mm, he, exactly. He wanted her there. She was there for him. She was never clamoring to be a famous musician or anything like that. That just wasn't part of it, even though that there is a criticism to that effect occasionally. Exactly. And the thing is, and we'll talk about this more in a little bit, but her investment in family and creating more of a quote unquote traditional home life, like, you know, they took their kids on tour with them. They never broke up the family unit. That was something that Paul really wanted, I think, his whole life. But he quote unquote, sowed his oats and he found Linda and she also matched those values. I think that was something that they both were really invested in. He loved her commitment to living kind of a free outdoorsy life, to having their children be grounded. He really got yeah, along. super low key. Yeah. yeah, like outdoorsy. They sent their kids to public school. They really wanted their kids to live as normal a life as possible other than going on world tours, you know, but they did go to public school. So Linda was born in 1941 to Lee and Louise Eastman. And her family lived in Cleveland. They're from Shaker Heights, uh, which is a heavily Jewish section of Cleveland. It's got great old mansions and just lovely. So I always like a little shout out to my fellow Ohioans. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And Paul, I remember seeing Paul in 2002 in Cleveland on the driving rain tour, and he was giving a shout out. He's like, you know, I've got family over in Shaker Heights, you know, Linda's people and uh, so yeah, they, they would apparently go visit them in, Cle in Clevesburg. So that's pretty cool. Anyway, sidebar on Linda's family. I love it. I love <laughs> yeah. it. The Eastman family was not part of the Eastman Kodak empire, as rumor suggests. So she was not a photographer because her family was involved in photography. Lee was a prominent entertainment lawyer, so he represented celebrities of the day like the band leader Tommy Dorsey, songwriters Harold Arlen, Jack Lawrence, and the visual artist Mark Rothko, among others. In fact, Lee's connections meant that Paul McCartney was actually not the first songwriter to write a song about Linda. When she was four, Jack Lawrence wrote the song Linda after her, which was a number one hit for singer Buddy Clark in 1947, which is a beautiful, beautiful song and video, and was later recorded by Jan and Dean in a totally horrific doo-wop style. Can you not? 
That's not true. It's totally true, and it's awful. You, you're saying that because you know I'm going to defend Jen and Dean, right? Go for it. <laughs> Fight me. I. It's not their finest moment, but it's not the worst. <laughs> if you listen to one song after the other, back to back. <sighs> okay, it's, it's whatever. Hard. I, it's hard. I, I can't get into Jen and Dean right now, but this is super triggering for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's okay. It's a great song anyway. And fun fact, shortly after the, the song came out, the name Linda displaced the name Mary as the country's most popular female baby name. So if there are people out there about that age who were named Linda, some of them may have inadvertently been named after Linda McCartney. That's so cool. Right? I love that. And there's a great picture too. We'll try to dig it up, but there she's sitting with Jack Lawrence, I think at the piano and he's got the sheet music for Linda. Oh yeah. Like a little baby. That's adorable. It's so cute. Yeah. So Linda grew up in Westchester, New York. She got an associate's degree from Vermont college where she met her first husband. His name was Melvin C. And as in the case of almost every Beatles related marriage or maybe almost every marriage at that time, Linda and Melvin got married when they learned Linda was pregnant. And then she went off to with him to the University of Arizona, where he went to graduate school, and she got her bachelor's in art history. And Arizona was where Linda developed a preference for the open sky for the American Southwest. That's why they had a home out there uh, in Arizona. And that is where she first took up photography as a hobby. Other not-so-fun fact, while she was there, her mother, Louise, was killed in the famous 1962 American Airlines Flight 1 plane crash, and from then on, she disliked air travel for the rest of her life. That would do it. Yeah, she must have done a lot of air travel, too, so that must have been really hard to deal with. I also heard that um, Linda's mom and dad would always fly separately, like on separate planes in case this ever happened. Oh, God. And it's so crazy because it did did happen. That's so messed up. Be prepared, I guess. That's crazy. Anyway. Side note, this crash was actually a plot point in season two of Mad Men when Pete Campbell's father died in the same plane. Oh, that's right. Oh, God, I forgot about that. Linda and Melvin C. were really not that compatible. He was he was a professor type. Linda preferred a more free-spirited, laid-back, outdoorsy lifestyle. So they got divorced in 1965. After that, newly divorced single mother Linda and her young daughter Heather went to New York City. And Linda had to go to work. She got a job as a receptionist and editorial assistant for a town and country magazine. And this is where the story of the Linda we know really begins. Dun, dun, dun. Yay. <laughs> Uh, So in 1965, when she was working for Town & Country, Linda began dating uh, professional photographer David Dalton, and she was assisting him on shoots, and she was also doing the same at Town & Country, and she started really looking at how professional photographers created their shots, and she started working on the shoots herself, and her work there paid off because between her exposure to professional photo shoots and her knowledge of the entertainment industry that came from her family and the innate talent she had, just from being interested in photography. Just a year later, she was one of the top rock photographers. She photographed, you know, the Rolling Stones, Aretha Franklin, eventually, of course, the Beatles, the Doors. I mean, she was she was so sought after in such a short period of time. We'll again talk about this later, but she really was the first to get really intimate portraits of these these artists because she was so warm and friendly with them. A lot of photographers, even today, sort of like to stay in the background. And that's a, you know, a technique that many photographers have used for many years, sort of to disappear and let the artist sort of do their thing and not interfere. But she sort of changed that. 
her subjects really felt that they got almost intimate with her. And I don't mean in a sexual way, but the way that she approached them as a photographer allowed them to feel really comfortable and open in a way that they said that they didn't feel with other people, which is, I think, why she was able to get such high profile clients and be such a sought after photographer after such a short amount of time. It wasn't even so much you know, technique or years of experience rather than it was her manner and the way she used her personality to help the subjects open up. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think that's probably very, very true. On top of that, she shattered a giant glass ceiling in her industry. She was the first woman ever to have her photo used as a Rolling Stone cover photo. And it was her Clapton photo on the May 11th, 1968 cover. That's so cool. Like, that's such a distinction, you know? I mean, I collect a lot of 60s team mags, and she shot tons of stuff for that. And her photos are brilliant and amazing, and I love them. But, you know, that is sort of putting her in a whole new echelon. You know, Rolling Stone is not a team mag. That's, like, legit, especially in 68. Oh, I'd love to see some of her work, though, because those are lesser-known photos and earlier photos. Oh, please post some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I will. There's a great, there's a couple and I'm thinking of right now of like the Love and Spoonful. Obviously, I'm a massive fan, but she took some really fun ones of like Zalianovsky. And um, I mean, she also shot the animals. She loved shooting those guys. So yeah, I'll, I'll try to dig up some for my team eggs. Ooh, that'd be awesome. Now we get to the point most people know her at. Her work granted her access to some of the most exclusive people in places of the era. And in 1967, on an overseas assignment in the UK, she met one Paul McCartney at the Bag and Nails Club in London. And four days later, on May 19th of that year, she met him again at the Sgt. Pepper launch party at Brian Epstein's house. And many years later, Paul would commemorate that night in a song on his brilliant album, uh, Driving Rain, called Magic. And once again, we're back at 90s Paul. No, 2002 Paul. Really? Thank oh. Thank you. Oh, 2001, yeah. 2002. That's true. That, that special Because Driving Rain has freedom on it. Yeah. All right. Okay. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> Great. God, Erica. Oh, I'm terrible. <laughs> freedom. Anyway. Oh, my God. Let's not talk about freedom anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Back to Linda. So everybody who likes the Beatles has probably seen that famous photo of Paul and Linda sitting on the f Linda sitting on the floor, I think, and she's wearing a really, really mod Her striped blazer. blazer. <sighs> yeah, that at the Sgt. Pepper party. Oh, <sighs> that is the picture that most people think is the start of their great love affair, but. It actually wasn't. It was a not until a year later that they met again in New York City and the whirlwind romance turned into a marriage. In fact, Paul was pretty busy in the year between their first meeting and, and their uh, eventual coupling. Uh, he was engaged to Jane Asher. He was cheating on Jane with Francie Schwartz. And at the same time, he was also in a secret relationship with Maggie McGivern. So, wow, very busy. He was a busy dude. And his Filthy, filthy ways ended with what is known <laughs> as Paul's Dirty Weekend. Allison, I know that you are a connoisseur of the Dirty Weekend. Would you like to remind us what happened oh that day? <laughs> I, I love that I'm like the source for the Dirty Weekend. Like, I don't know how I got this. I I mean, I'm very, I feel very privileged to, to be the teller of the Dirty Weekend. The too long didn't read version of Paul's Dirty Weekend in Los Angeles at, I believe, the Beverly Hills Hotel in a bungalow was that 
Paul had uh, with him some exceptional fine ladies. Uh, he had a couple hookers. He also had Peggy Lipton showing up and trying to get a hold of him. But, you know, Paul was a little bit busy. You know, he had two hookers in two separate rooms running back and forth between them. Um, and uh, Peggy Lipton never did get her time. But Linda showed up at the Beverly Hills Hotel and all that poof vanished. He got rid of the hookers just in time for Linda to show up. He got a nice little phone call, was like, Linda's on her way. Holy shit, get rid of the hookers. And he did. And uh, Peggy Lipton, she says her last vision of Paul from the Dirty Weekend is watching he and Linda just walking out of the hotel. And uh, that's it. That's the very short version of that very crazy weekend. And like his last was his was huge. You know, if you're going to go out, go big. Yeah. <laughs> So once he got with Linda after this lovely, lovely weekend, he really made a hard turn away from being what Cynthia Lennon referred to as the town bull. And as far <laughs> as we know, he he never acted like that again. He was faithful to Linda. No. They were married in March of 1969. Of course, as it goes, Linda was four months pregnant with Mary at the time. And from then on, the relationship became known as one of the most enduring love stories in rock history. They were married 29 years until she died in 1998. And with the exception of the nine days Paul spent in jail for pot possession in Japan in, was in 1981, it said they never spent a night apart. Aww. Yeah, Paul would always say, you know, when the choice came to like staying in a hotel after like a recording session or driving like the two hours to Sussex to go home to Linda, he would always go home, which is just so sweet. And I can imagine it was kind of credited to their start, which as idyllic as their relationship sounds was probably really rocky. I mean, they got married in 1969. The Beatles broke up shortly thereafter. And Paul went into a deep alcohol-infused depression, existential crisis about who was he without the Beatles. Um, and he credits Linda as the only one who could have broken him out of it to move on with his life. That is actually what maybe I'm amazed is about. And if you listen to the lyrics literally, it definitely is about that one period, which I think probably bonded them closer than any other experience could have. Oh, so amazing. I'm just thinking about the scene in the Linda McCartney story, because of course, I have to reference everything back to biopics. Biopics are amazing. <laughs> but you know, where um, Linda is talking Paul out of his his stupor in Scotland, and she's basically just like, giving him a come to Jesus moment. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, you can only imagine Linda, I think, as a person, not fictional Linda, um, but Linda as a person was so, she was just a force to be reckoned with. So I think maybe it was a mix of like good cop, bad cop on Paul. We can only speculate, but I can just see her like going from like building him up to just like kicking his ass and yep. being like, dude, get out there. Like you're Paul fucking McCartney. You don't need John Lennon to help you write hit songs. You don't need this. You're so, you know, you're talented, whatever. I mean, that's just so... Mm. I know. I just love that. Everybody needs a partner like that. Absolutely. Do you think she regretted it, though, when she said, you know, you don't need a partner like John? And he's like, no, I could use you. You're going to learn how to play keyboards now. <laughs> She's like, LOL, not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. Oh, man. But that's part of what got him out of his crisis was that at Paul's request, Linda learned how to play keyboard. She started recording with him. She'd actually done it a little bit earlier in the McCartney sessions. But as far as 1970 on, she was really part of the band for the rest of her life. And that was the way Paul wanted it. I don't know necessarily if it was the way Linda wanted it, but she did it because she knew he needed it. Yeah. I mean, Paul always says if he and he uses this quote, I think, in the Wingspan documentary 
but he always says Wings was Linda's band. If you look at it, you know, it was her. She was really the front woman. She was really kind of like, you know, the enigmatic one, whatever. And I think she, I don't think that role came naturally to her, but I think she definitely like took it on. And I think a lot of ways it sort of emboldened her, you know, I think it allowed her to become that like badass, you know, don't give a F sort of, you know, she had that swagger, you mm-hmm. know, after she was in wings, but yeah, I don't know. I think at first she would probably have been super hesitant. Like, I don't think she ever wanted to be like a rock star in her own right. No, no, I don't. She never really had musical aspirations. So any of that groupie talk that said that that was her eventual goal, that was definitely not her goal. Definitely not. But she did it. And I think that it was a great contribution to the sound of Wings at that time. So I think that Paul had actually really good judgment and and foresight asking her to be part of the band. Yeah, she was like a real pioneer Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. I think Wings, in a way, would have been... Almost every 70s band without her sound. Her sound really oh, that's so, that's such made a good it. Point. You know, like one thing I always think of is that parody song in the movie Role Models that they wrote to sound just like a <laughs> oh, wing yeah. song, which I've mentioned before. I'm kind of obsessed with it. But I read an article about how they wrote it and why they wrote it. And they said that one of the things that they had to have was a female harmony that sounded like Linda, because without that, you don't have wings. Yeah. And she made that sound, you know, between her, Paul and Denny, that was the sound. And there's a huge difference between what Paul sounds like with and without Linda. Yeah. And you can say what you want about Linda's voice and you can go on YouTube and listen to the voice isolation tracks. I won't like, listen get, to out it. Of, get out of here with that. But like, even when you hear the raw stuff, like I'm thinking about Paul and Linda doing like bip bop or something mm-hmm. like they have a really good blend, you know, and Linda is not like the best singer. I'm not the best singer, but I think she has a really good tonality and a really rawness where I think if it were today, she might be more accepted as an indie personality of her own. Yeah. You know, she had mm-hmm. that kind of voice, but at the time and people coming to wings already with a sort of like, who the fuck is Linda? You know, who does she think she is? That sort of colored it. Not only was she not a traditional musician, but there are people who believed she and Yoko broke of the Beatles. So mm-hmm. there was extra vitriol for her. Fun. Fun. <laughs> Great. Uh, another thing that Linda was famous for was her vegetarianism. She and Paul went vegetarian in 1971 and the story goes that they were eating lamb chops and they saw the sheep outside their window they made a connection and they you know never ate meat again and after that linda became a fierce advocate for animal rights and she also became a noted vegetarian cook she wrote cookbooks and she opened linda mccartney foods a few years before her death which is primarily in the uk so it's a vegetarian like frozen foods line but it's still quite popular there in the uk as far as I know. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, I found like her frozen macaroni and cheese in my grocery store in like Little Town, Ohio, and I was so excited. Oh my god, I would have freaked out. <laughs> yeah, I kind of did, and it was okay. I remember it being fine, but I do remember like I had her cookbooks because I was just crazy obsessed. But we tried to make her apple pie, and I remember it didn't taste great. Mm. But you know what? We could have messed up the recipe. So take that with a grain of salt. I had those cookbooks too. That was my first attempt at being vegetarian. And it didn't last because it was really hard back then. Those recipes were really, really hard. And I'll talk about this a little bit later in the episode. But she was really trying to discover how to make vegetarian cuisine similar enough to a meat eater's cuisine that they wouldn't miss it. 
So she right. was experimenting with things like textured vegetable protein and a lot of things that, you know, people don't really use anymore in vegetarian cooking and are very, very hard to work with, like really hard um, yeah. to try and make that happen. So I think that it was a kind of a first iteration of something that's turned into a huge industry. Mm-hmm. Now. 100%. Yeah. So Linda died in April of 1998, but a lot of her legacy still lives on. Um, She was a pioneer in the now booming vegetarian food movement. The photos that she took captured an element of 60s pop culture that I really think nobody ever did. And later, of course, the McCartney family. I mean, just that alone, the candid pictures she took of their life together, at least for Beatles fans, they're priceless. As we were talking about, her voice is an essential part of the wing sound, and her memory and her life is carried on by Paul and her children, Mary and Stella especially, who are always citing Linda's influence in their work in photography and in fashion design, respectively. I don't know if I've ever seen any other person in the arts who is so focused on, well, this is what my mother, you know, I'm inspired by what my mother did. And it's both of them. They talk about her a lot. Right. I mean, considering they had two famous parents, one way more famous than the other, if they wanted to be using it as a leverage up, they'd be talking about Paul's influence on them, not not Linda's. But they both continually talk about Linda's. Right. And didn't Stella run that campaign? I want to say it was like a year or two ago, but it was based on her mother and like her 60s fashion, where she had models that looked just like Linda. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, oh, I love those photographs so much. If we can dig those up, we'll post them because they're just gorgeous. Oh, yeah. And Linda McCartney Foods, actually, at the direction of Mary, did a campaign about kindness. And that was all based in Linda's legacy, too. And that was Aww. like last year, I think. So we'll have to find that video. But That's so nice. yeah, they're still doing it. They're still they're still perpetuating her legacy. So after all this, what is it about Linda that would make me say she is a feminist role model? You know, in a way, this is a hard topic to talk about because there are a lot of ways and a lot of valid ways to define feminism and feminist. And one does not negate the other. And it's such a rich conversation out there. And this is only touching the, the very tip of the iceberg. But I mean, to me, I see it as a woman's right to make the choices that are right for her, you know, whether it's school, career, service, family, whatever, but with the same opportunities and on the same level of opportunity that is afforded to men. That's super simplistic, but it's inspiring to me to see women out there who have taken principles like that and lived unusual and authentic lives because of it. And to me, Linda was one of them. I think your definition of feminism is very, very close to mine. I think mine kind of is even more, in a lot of ways, kind of like a sadder definition because it's way more basic. I think for me, feminism is rooted in just the ability for a woman to live her authentic life and to be true to herself. And, you know, that means her being able to do whatever she wants without comments from men or somebody comparing her job performance or whatever to a man's or anything like that, where it wouldn't happen to a man, Mm -hmm. you know, it wouldn't happen where, you know, a man's performance is compared to a woman's like, it's just, it's messed up. So living that equal existence and just a basic form and women just being able to feel comfortable enough to just be themselves, be true to who they are, which Linda really, really embodied. I mean, 
my pivotal Linda moment of feminism are those wings picks with she and Paul and Denny are in them. And um, she got so much criticism because she didn't shave her legs. Oh, you right, know, in those of course. And she didn't shave under her arms, you know, in a lot of pictures and for years. And it's like, I, I remember the first time as a teenager seeing the picture where she didn't shave her legs. And I was just like, oh, my God. Like, that's amazing. And she, and I had the thought where it's like, and she's still married to Paul McCartney, which I know is sort of like anti-feminist, but. But as a kid, uh, that's what you think, because that's the, that's the expectation that you shave your legs and you look pretty in the conventional way. Exactly. And it sort of made me think like, oh my God, well, Paul is cool too. Like he's a, he's a feminist because he like didn't insist that his wife fucking conform to these like conventional standards of beauty. I think, you know, for her to just be like, yeah, I'm not going to do this. And I don't care. Like, let's do this photo shoot and I'm not going to shave my legs and people are going to get pissed, which they did, but she just didn't want to do it. And that's, that's amazing. That's feminism. Something that simple. Cause it's not like, you know, nuking a country. It's literally, but it's something that gets people so mad and men so angry but it's like a woman should be able to choose whether or not she wants to shave her legs. That was something massive for me. Absolutely. And just her whole her whole living her life as a woman in these male spaces. And she got everything that people on the internet get now. You know, comments about her looks, her voice, her artistic product, her food, the way she talks, the way she interacts with her family. You know, if, if Twitter was around back then, they would have had a field day with her. Oh, my God. Yeah, I can't even imagine. You know, obviously, those things affect you if people are saying it in public, but it didn't affect her enough that she stopped being herself. Right. And she didn't give them the satisfaction Mm -hmm. of saying that it bothered her, which is amazing. That alone, to me, is a great indicator of a role model, you know, basically saying, like, don't let people's opinions affect you because they don't matter. Yeah. What matters is how you live your life and stay in your lane and do what you want to do and just don't let that affect you, which is amazing. And if you think about it from the beginning of her time, as we really know her when she was out there, she had to make her own way in the world. 1965, she was a divorced single mom and she had a degree in the arts and almost no work experience. And she was a woman in 1965. I mean, that's hard enough now. Um, Right. So, but she did it. And she did it in a career that she had no formal experience in. And like almost everything in the arts at that time was almost entirely male dominated. I mean, it's hard for me now to really envision the arts as like a sausage factory, but it was. And it was really like, it was Mm -hmm. kind of a bro space. I mean, just think about like the the word A&R man. You know, they were all men. right. They were all men. And photography was the same. There there were really not serious women photographers at the highest level in that space. And she did break that glass ceiling. And there is a lot of discussion, though, about her. Did she sleep her way to fame and fortune and eventually beetle wifedom? Is she Linda Starfucker? Is it correct? Mm, well, no. <laughs> I, I I don't think it's correct. I mean, the thing is that she was extremely talented and there was something about her that got the best out of her subjects. Um, there was a museum that did an ex- exhibit on her a while back and they described that she had a distinctive personal style, in quotes, a casual elegance combined with an instinctive feeling for capturing the subject at just the right instant. Mm. And another reviewer remarked that her portrait of Twiggy was almost voyeuristic in its intimacy. 
Her work was natural. Her work was easy. She put people at ease. And like we were saying before, she just made people kind of come out of their shells and be who they are. Did she have sex with some of them? Yup. She mm-hmm. had sex with a lot of them. <laughs> but Jelly. Yeah, right. But the uh, review that I just read was about her portrait of, of Twiggy. And as far as I know, she was heterosexual. So from everything that I know about her, she was probably not having sex with Twiggy. But she still got that same thing out of it. So if it isn't confined to just the people that she slept with, I don't think the argument stands. Right. I think it's hard to move in those circles and not want to sort of broaden your own circles, you know, moving in those circles with the Rolling Stones, with the animals, with Jimi Hendrix, with the doors, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm sure it's easy to get sort of sucked into that world and be like, oh, I'd love to meet Georgie Fame or I'd love to do this, you know, or whatever. And I think, you know, there might have been some sort of crush on Paul or there might have been a crush on Mick Jagger or whatever. Like, of course, she's a woman, you know, she's a young woman in her 20s. But I don't think she actively pursued this career because of rock stars. That's sure. just not. Yeah. And there's a difference between saying that with your girlfriends and being like, OK, I'm in this for this reason and I'm going to snag that man. Exactly. Exactly. And that's where a lot of people get that when the star fucker sort of attitude. And the problem is, is people don't some people don't realize the difference mm-hmm. because there's that double standard. You know, if a man is like, oh, I think, you know, this model, I think Twiggy's so hot. Like, I want to, you know have sex with her or I want to, you know, or Patty Boyd or whatever. It's like, that's fine because you're a man and you're supposed to have that like wild sexual appetite. But if a woman, especially a woman in the sixties would say, Oh, you know, I'd love to, you know, meet Mick Jagger. And then it's like, Oh, you slut. The whole double standard thing was, is, was, and is still a problem. It's slut shaming. Let's just come out and talk about that. For the most part, these were heterosexual relationships. And so there was a man and a woman involved every time that Mick Jagger or Jim Morrison or Jimi Hendrix had sex with somebody. And those men don't get any crap for it. Those men are just doing their thing. But those women are star fuckers. Yeah. So assuming, which I think I'm assuming correctly, that these were consensual relationships, it's just sexist to slut shame her for having relationships with her subject in a world where everybody was having sex with everybody else all the time in the swinging 60s. I mean, Mick Jagger gets like street cred because it's like, oh, yeah, a classic Mick, you know, sleeping with thousands of women. Like, haha, that's just who we, you know, and it's like, no, dude, that's the same thing. It's the same thing. If you can't be that cavalier about Mick Jagger or Paul or John or whoever, you know, having all these like one night stands or these women, you know, Paul. Dirty weekend, two hookers, like, you know, among how many others, you know, and you can't shame Linda for expressing herself during the sexual revolution. When you move in these circles, too, it's like, who are you going to date? You're going to date people you know who you meet. And who's she meeting? She's meeting a lot of entertainment people. Right. You know, that's just kind of how it happens. Like, so it's not fair. It's just not fair. Even if it enhanced her relationships with some of her subjects, it did not speak to her talent when you see Mm -mm. her talent as as a whole yeah her photographs and her her professional ambition and all of that would have been exactly the same if she didn't have a relationship with Mick Jagger and a lot of her photos were of inanimate objects of you know still lives and things she certainly didn't she she wasn't Linda Starfucker there no right I hope not (laughs) I hope not (laughs) yeah another reason that I think that she is a really strong role model is that She made her own way in the world. You know, she did what she had to do despite 
all of this terrible criticism that she got, like what we talked about before. I mean, you know, when she married Paul, there was American slut, go home, was, you know, scrawled across his Doran spray paint. The fans hated her. The critics hated her. Everybody hated her. They hated her marriage and her activism and her singing voice, her hair, her fashion. You know, there's always something. But she made the choice to continue to be who she wanted to be and do what she wanted to do, which is brave. Very brave. Yeah. Especially when you're with a powerful man. Yeah, a powerful man that everybody loves who just went through this crazy transition with the breakup of the Beatles, at least during the Wings times. And she still got up there and she sang with him. And I'm sure that was a big part of some of the vitriol for both Linda and Yoko was that even though Linda and Yoko did not have the, they were not on the same talent level as John was to Paul or Paul was to John. Both John and Paul thought of them as equal partners. And I think part of the public hatred towards them or whatever is the fact that they didn't shrink away. You know, think about all the wives married to celebrity men who you don't see. They don't bring them out in public, you know, because they've gotten backlash online or whatever today. It would have been easy for Linda to sort of be like, okay, Paul, you go out and make the money. I'm going to stay home with kids and do photography. I mean, that would have been so easy Mm -hmm. for her. But no, she was like, no, I want to be with my husband. We're going to go on the road. We have this band. Like, this is our lives. And they can say whatever the hell they want about me. And I don't care. I mean, maybe this is less of a, a feminist thing and more just a authenticity issue. But I just think that when you see somebody who still keeps going with what they want to do despite this level of criticism it's something definitely to be admired and I don't think Linda gets enough credit for all of the crap that she took and the way that she stood tall against it and also as we said was Paul's choice really so bad her voice was really good on wing songs uh she said woman cook at the house library if you guys don't have that album just get it it's so good yeah, just listen to I got bluebird up. bluebird oh yeah so good <laughs> I love bluebird or even silly love songs Yeah, I was going to say Bluebird's probably one of her best musical moments. And the harmony is actually not easy. I bet. You know, another thing about her that I love was that she didn't let the traditional gender stereotypes dictate her choices, which I think is really cool. You know, I mean, she did both things that were seen as masculine and feminine. She did cooking, she did homemaking, she was a mother. But at the same time, she was a photographer in a male-dominated world, and she was an entrepreneur. She didn't just cook. She wrote cookbooks, and she started a food company. And she was also the one taking the meetings for that, like really spearheading the, the business. I remember Paul talking about one time where he went with her while she was having meetings, and he just like waited in the car, like he read magazines, like, <laughs> you That's know, great. so... Yeah, so she was the one really kind of like wearing the pants in that that area. And I think that's really important to think about for today. We're in an age where women's choices are continually judged. You know, if if you stay at home, well, you're old fashioned. If you go to work, how are you taking care of your kids? If you want leave for your male partner, like there's always judgment. It's really all about what you want to do. And there should not be judgment if you want to stay home. There should not be judgment if you want to work. There should not be judgment if your male partner wants to stay home. They're all valid choices and... Having somebody who just said, well, I'm going to do what I want. It's inspiring to see what you could do with your one lifetime. I totally agree. I totally agree. She set the scene for a lot of women to follow in her footsteps in a lot of ways. Yeah. I wish it was more out there. I wish more people were talking about it. Yeah, me too. (laughs) And one final place where I think it's really important to acknowledge was that she was really a visionary. When she had become a vegetarian, it was not trendy 
It was not easy. And it was not understood. There weren't veggie burgers. You couldn't get the impossible burger at a random restaurant. So when Linda wanted to be a vegetarian because she believed in being against animal cruelty, she took it upon herself to figure out how to make it as easy as possible for other people who wanted to do the same thing. She was thinking about it. And what she said was that the reason why it was so hard to make the change was that there was nothing that was created to could fill the hole in the middle of the plate that going meatless left the traditional American and United Kingdom diet. You had, especially in the 70s, you had meat and potatoes. What would you put there in place of the meat? There was really nothing except foods from other cultures. And that wasn't quite as mainstreamed at that time. So she kind of set out to fix that. Um, she was a passionate cook. She was always very interested in cooking. And she kept experimenting with new ways to make a meat-free diet easy for anyone to adopt while attempting to also taste good, mimic meat, making people feel like they're not missing that hole in the plate. I don't know if she succeeded in that. I know that the recipes yeah, that sure. she made were really hard, but that was the experimental precursor to what we have now, which is a range of not only meatless meat products made out of soy and pea protein and all these things, but scientifically lab-grown meat where you can actually get meat without having to kill an animal. That's a huge thing right now. I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's so many new things in the news about people cultivating meat in the lab. Yeah, I just heard about that, actually. It's funny you mentioned that. And on that vein, too, it's like she was really kind of the first, I think, to give vegetarians convenience options. Mm -hmm. Like you could like go and get like a meatless meatloaf and throw it in the microwave. It was like you could actually like go and get something just like your meat eating friends and have a really simple dinner. As far as going vegetarian is concerned, I think that problem that she tried to tackle is really the problem that is the biggest problem to people who are considering vegetarianism but aren't sure about it. And I wish she had seen this, you know, I wish she could have seen how it grew and how other people took those things and ran and where that is right now, because it's it's so it has come so far. And I just wish that she was recognized as really a founder of this movement. And not to mention, she and Paul, think about how big the Beatles fandom is. I certainly, when I was a kid, I tried to go veggie because of Paul and Linda. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, it didn't stick. You know, I love meat. I'll, <laughs> I'll just say it. <laughs> it's delicious. But, and I feel bad about that. Uh, that's another topic. Maybe I'll eat lab-grown meat one day and then it'll be solved. Oh, maybe. Then I'll feel okay. I know a lot of my friends who went veggie because of them, they're still vegetarian. They were the reason why they wanted to go vegetarian. I mean, imagine how many people in the Beatles fandom, it did stick for them. And that's to her credit, she and Paul. And then when they went out on their tours, they were sponsored by people like Friends of the Earth. And they talked about it on stage. And even when Linda died, Paul even said, you know, anybody who wants to tribute her after her death, just go veggie. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I wish that she was remembered for her visionary thought and for her ability to make something happen and be really the first to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And in the end, well, most likely the constant criticism did wear on her. It was a lot, but she did get the last word at the end of her life. This song, The Light Comes From Within, is ridiculous. The best song. It's insane. Ever. It's great. Oh my God. 
It's her final studio recording. Yeah. It's like one of those songs where I still remember vividly, like every time I listened to it as a kid, not just the first time, but every time. I probably told this story in the podcast before. I think I probably told it at a fest or two. I remember singing it. I had it playing in my desktop computer with the speakers. Like this is probably the early 2000s. And I was with my friend, Aaron, again, shout out uh, to my manufacturer, Beetle fan friend um and we were like singing at the top of our lungs so loud that we didn't hear my mom come in and like when we heard her we paused the song and she's like I heard what you said oh my god (laughs) and it's like no we weren't listening to like you know Rammstein or whatever sorry I'm dating myself but we're listening to Linda McCartney (laughs) yeah but this song she wrote this song and it had enough f-bombs in it that forced the BBC to ban this single for explicit language doesn't it only have one? But then she then she says dick, right? She She's says like, you stupid, stupid dick. dick. And yeah, I think the F-bomb was only one. So maybe not enough F-bombs, but the language but was coarse. Yeah. And it's wonderful. But it's also really a profound song. It's aggressive and it's angry and it's yeah. amazing. And if you haven't heard this song, I'm going to play it out at the end of the show because, you know, you got to hear it. And yeah. it's really Linda saying to all of my haters, I don't really care what you say. You make me sick. You suck. And then she says, oppression won't win. The light comes from within. It's both telling everybody off, but also stating her position as somebody who loves peace and to have a cause and to care for the earth and to care for other people on the earth and that they can just suck a dick. If, right. If they're not on board with it. I mean, it's just a, it's a wonderful contrast between um, this flowery language and this, you know, lofty language and, you know, fuck off. It's great. Right. And it definitely, and it also gives credence to the, you know, the old adage of true beauty and the beauty comes from within. It's like, yeah, whatever you fucking say about me, I don't care. Like I know who I am and I'm a kind person and I, yeah, I believe in all these causes and I have a personal life that you don't even know about. So you don't even matter. Yeah. I'm going to just read a quote that Paul said about the song just to tie it all up. This is one of the only quotes that I've really found that actually references Linda and feminism in the same sentence. So I I like it. So Paul said it was in the liner notes to Wide Prairie, which is the posthumous album of Linda's songs. It was about a year after her death released, right? I think Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I think so. So about this song, Paul said, if I got up, which is another song, showed Linda's strong opposition to oppression, then the light took it a few steps further. During the last couple of years of her life, we were required to make many trips up to London for one treatment or another. We always tried to put the journey time to good use. She and I talked a lot about this album and the lyrics to this song were finished during one such trip. When we came to record the vocal, which was sadly to be her last, I said half-jokingly, you can't sing this. She looked at me with a sparkle in her eye and she said, you want to bet? It was her answer to all the people who had ever put her down and that whole dumb male chauvinist attitude that to her had caused so much harm in our society. God bless her. My little baby literally had the last word. Mm, I love that quote so much. Yeah, that to me is the essence of her feminism. It was about living her life, rubbing right up against these people and saying, I don't care what you say. The light comes within and I'm going to do what I want. I love that. Yeah. I love that. 
It's so good. And it's a type of activism or feminism we all can embrace where it's like, you don't have to go out and participate in marches if if you're not comfortable with that. You don't have to like donate hundreds of dollars to causes. It's like, just live your life in a way that represents what you believe. Sometimes that's enough and it makes an impact. So what do you think? Is this argument valid? Yes. I mean, I'm totally on board. I have loved Linda, obviously, pretty much my whole Beatles fandom since I found out about her. And I think she is is a really big role model. Um, and I love that Mary and Stella still talk about her all the time and sort of like use her influence to guide themselves and their careers and their lives and all that. And it's really refreshing too in rock and roll, you know, to see this kind of like normal family come up. And, and Linda was the, the heart of it. You know, I think she was really the foundation for all of that. And yeah. just as a person, she's, there's just so much to love with her life. And the fact that she was a really progressive female at a time where it was, you know, super unheard of, like how many other rock stars wives at that point, not to boil her down to that sort of persona, but really it's like, you know, Bianca Jagger wasn't going out and, you know, performing with Mick, you know, and Linda was really a part of it. She was really at the heart of it. Really the only other woman in that particular space was Yoko, which is always an interesting parallel to me, really how close Yoko and Linda were. As far as being, you know, Mm. strong-minded, independent, free-thinking women. 100%. 100%. It's very funny. We should do a Yoko and Linda episode eventually because they have so much commonality. It's really weird. It is funny that those are really the two that come to mind. It's kind of mind-blowing to think about it. Yes. Oh, well, this has been really fun. I'm glad we got to bring Linda out into the light like this. I love talking about her. So much more than lovely, but also lovely. Yes, definitely. She's she's everything. She's a total package. She is. <laughs> As I say. And, you know, if you have thoughts on Linda or stories or anything you'd like to share with us, obviously hit us up, you know, online on social media or email us, bcthebeatles at Gmail. And, uh, yeah, we could talk about Linda forever. Yes, yeah, so we'd love to keep going with this conversation. And one of my goals in life is to change the, the conversation around Linda. It's so often so negative and it should not be. And sometimes, too, I notice with the conversation around her, it doesn't start off negative, but then people have to like, but you know, like yeah, about her and it's like, just stop. Like, yeah. no caveats. This is not <laughs> the time or the place, you know? Nope. Come on. Right. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> and now I guess it's time for our favorite Beatles related thing of the week. Yes. What are you obsessed with this week? What am I obsessed with? Well, mine's really simple, but uh, it's really special to me. So years ago, and I was trying to think where I got this shirt and I can't remember. I want to say it was like somewhere like old Navy or very random like that, but I got this Beatles shirt and it is a red shirt. And it says, you know how those t-shirts that have the names where it's like blank and blank and blank. Like you mean like the back of our business card? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly like that. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so uh, but it has like John, Paul, George, Ringo, but it has instead it has like their faces from the Hard Day's Night album cover with their names. And it's just so cool. And I thought for years, you know how you have like T-shirts or something that you sort of think about? Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe it's just me where I'm like, oh, where is that shirt? Okay, mm-hmm. okay, cool. Because like, I'm sort of like, where is that shirt? Where is that shirt? And I just, I cannot imagine where it is or where I would have like, you know, thrown it away or given it away. And so that was one and it just resurfaced, oh like in the past like couple weeks. 
and I found it again and I've been wearing it all the time because it's the best shirt and it's also really soft like shout out to soft t-shirts Yay. But, um it's a really interesting because I've never seen any other Beatles fans wearing it so I'm not sure it, it's so old now maybe you know their shirts got worn out but yeah I love the shirt so that's my favorite Beatles related moment of the week is this this amazing shirt now that's fantastic and actually it's even better because that John and Paul and Ringo and George thing that was actually the first iteration of that it was a design company that was trying to come up with they were trying to do some exercise and they what they came up with was that shirt in Helvetica with the Beatles names on it and it ended up being you know it's a thing for everybody the guardians of the galaxy and all the marvel comics and you know all those things now but it started with the beatles i had no idea that's so crazy so to have that with the beatles heads on it that's just a really cool play on it and i cannot wait to see you next time wearing that shirt because you have to oh i will 100 be wearing it Yay. um if, maybe i'll wear it at the ridge oh my god uh, totally wear it at the but... bridge yes but it's, yeah, it's so cool. I Yeah, I didn't know they started with the Beatles, but of course it did. Everything starts with the Beatles. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, for real. It's it's mind-blowing, their influence, you know. And, oh, wait, wait. Why did that shirt trend start? Because the Beatles. Because the Beatles. Yay! <laughs> I love anyway. <sighs> okay. Anyway, Erica, Erica, <laughs> what is your favorite Beatles-related thing of the week? Okay, my favorite <laughs> Beatles thing of the week, like blows my mind because it makes worlds collide that it just makes me so happy so the first big podcast of the world was of course serial in 2014 mm, yeah. and there were plenty of podcasts before that but it was huge and it exploded and it chronicled the the case of adnan sayed who was uh, convicted of murder as a teenager but there are lots of things that point to the fact that he was probably not the one who did it and the case has been going on for years and years and years and there have been appeals and there's been so much action and I was obsessed with Serial and I got obsessed with this case and I still follow this case to this day and lots of other people apparently do so I'm not the only freak and so HBO <laughs> made a four-part miniseries called The Case Against Adnan Sayed which is on HBO right now and I'm a little bit late to this party, but I just got HBO back when we, you know, Game of Thrones started. So I could not wait to see it. So I binged the case against Adnan Sayed last week and I saw at the credits that all of the music was done by Danny Harrison. So, oh my God. So it's just like this great full circle thing. And, you know, that Danny's contributing to this show that may shed more light on this case and hashtag free it non. So, yeah. I was really excited. Oh my about gosh, it. that's crazy! I didn't know that. I think he didn't he do the music too for like that dog series on Netflix. I feel oh, like I watched an episode of that. Anyway, oh. yeah, so that's cool that he's like doing more of that. But that's definitely crazy that he's doing the Adnan Syed doc music. Yeah. That's cool. I'm so happy he's but, involved in that. Was Serial your like first podcast? No, I'd actually been listening to podcasts since like actually like 2007. Um, oh, wow. And I found them online when I was working because I was really, really into Harry Potter and I would find all these Harry Potter podcasts. So I would just listen to them like on the website of like MuggleNet and all of these, you know, early mm. Harry Potter fan sites. And so I got really obsessed with them. And then I found one about The Office and I was like listening to like pop culture things. And then, you know, when the iPhone got popular, like around, I don't know, 2010, then it had a podcast app on it. So just, you know, went on from there. But yeah, I was a super early adopter of podcasts. That's so cool. Yeah, Serial was my first big, yeah. like, obsession with the podcast, yeah. But uh, only the first season, though. Yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. think Anand did it? 
<laughs> I don't know. I go back and forth so much. It's it's like, I, yeah, there's just a lot. There's a lot there. I know. You should really watch The Case Against Adnan Sayed for the music and the content. For sure. I watched the first episode, but I, I think I forgot about it in the flurry of Game of Thrones. So I've got to go back and yeah. just binge it. I get it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> anyway, on that note, we got to go binge stuff. So <laughs> thanks for listening to Because the Beatles. And as always, subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Give us a rating review, please, so other Beatle Maniacs can find us. Yeah, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. Probably lots of Linda stuff this week, so it's going to be good. Oh. Us. It's going to be a good week on social media. Remember, you can always email us. If you have any thoughts about Linda, want to talk to us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com, too. All right. So see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.